unwavering when we say Black Lives Matter. Okay, so welcome to the Truth to Power Show on Radio for Brooklyn. I'm your host, Vijar Nathan, and with us today is co-host um, Scott Raven. Welcome, Scott. Hey there, VJ. Hey, hey. So we're also in conversation with um, Lee E. Kang. Welcome, Lee E. Thanks for having me. Thank you, thank you. And our featured guest is Oksana Lebedivna, who is a uh, PhD candidate in linguistics at um, U. Um, Himenko Doctoral School of the National University of Kiev, uh, Molya uh, Academy in Kiev, Ukraine. Founded in 1615, uh, the academy appears to be one of uh, the oldest universities in Eastern Europe. In September 2019, she joined her alma mater co- uh, colleagues in teaching Ukrainian as a foreign language and recently was awarded the Fulbright Fellowship to Pace University. Um, besides the academic field, she writes poetry and was published in the Anthology of Young Ukrainian Poetry of the Third Millennium, which became a significant book for the modern Ukrainian literature. She became a co-organizer of the literary event at Book Arsenal Festival in Ukraine in 2019. Welcome, Oksana. Thanks for having me. I'm thank happy you. to be here. Thank you, thank you. So why don't we start the conversation off a little bit about... Um, your journey into linguistics, into PhD, how you got there, and we can have a conversation around linguistics and around your studies, all this kind of thing. Yeah, thank you. Well, um, that's um, that's a tough question, um, but um, really interesting one. <clears throat> I started from um, 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 well, w- when I um, entered the university, I was supposed to be um, a philologist, a literary scholar. So um, I had some, I had some plans about my future, but um, on my second grade, um, I, I realized I want to, um, I want to go into linguistics and um, into etymology. Um, I want to explore, examine the origins of uh, words and uh, and our language and the, the like the language we speak the language um that um was spoken um ages ago like proto language proto indo-european proto slavic common slavic and um um it just it took me took me away yeah mm. yeah good good so, um, yeah, so then you were talking a little bit about proto-languages. Can you expand a little bit more on that? Proto-languages. Um, um, proto-languages are languages that we, um, mm, well, um, usually we don't have any records um, of, of them. But um, we can reconstruct them from uh, the data collected from um Current languages or languages that were uh, recorded, um, and um, well, I refer to uh, Proto-Slavic, no records at all. Common Slavic, same, but still we have um, modern Slavic languages. Uh, we have some records from ninth um, century um, and and so on. Uh, so. Um, also, we have other languages that used to borrow um, some words from from common Slavic, like uh, proper names, um, and this is um, 
uh, oh, the uh, right, and, and they used to um, mm, they used to record those proper names. They um, they found um, on the Slavic uh, lands, um, so we can find it in Greek and Latin and um, in Germanic languages, um, right? And um, like and in Romanic languages as well. And that's how we reconstruct the structure of language, um, the vocabulary of language. Um, my field is uh, phonology, so so to say sounds, but a phoneme is a family of sounds, yeah. right? Um, with a with a head of a family, um, which is uh, the main allophone, uh, the the major uh, manifestation of a phoneme. Um, it, for example, we have. Uh, R, uh, a phoneme R, which can be manifested in different ways. Um, each speaker can uh, um, can, can say it um, um, in different ways, like R or A or you know A. But um, we understand we say R, and we we recognize it uh, from from the speech. Um, that's how it works. That's why um, that's why we uh, we used to. Distinguish between phonemes and uh, um, regular sounds um, that you know that w- that we use every day. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, go ahead. Phonemes. Uh, I just want to make a comment. We're 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 a quatrain of, uh, of of poets today. We've got four of us uh, coming at us from a trio of locations. I'm coming at you from uh, Woodstock, New York. We got Ilian Queens and, and you both in uh, Brooklyn right now. Yeah. Um, so as we kind of travel around the world with this conversation, hopefully, you know, from uh, Ukraine back into New York, uh, I was wondering, could you tell us a little about where, what is the meaning of, of your name, of Oksana in, in Ukrainian? Or what, what is kind of the origin of, of, of the name Oksana? <laughs> Thanks. Um, the name is um, originated from Greek, um, and um, in Greek it means uh, um, hospitable or foreign. So there are two different two meanings, and um, um, usually I, um, you know, I shift between them, um, feeling foreign in uh, some environments, some surroundings, and uh, feeling hospitable, like um, generous and uh, welcoming. Um, <clears throat> yeah. And it, it doesn't doesn't matter whether the society is, uh, a, the, or community is yours, or um, like really foreign. Um, you can feel, you can feel foreign, um, in every community, just your state uh, of um, like emotional state, I would say. Right, right. Um, I just wonder if you could talk a little bit, just getting back to early uh, development and, and where this connection to language and origins really, where it stemmed from from you. You said it had a lot to do with the sounds of the words, but was there something that put you on this path right, right, right off the bat? Yeah. Um, do you want me to proceed on um, on the brain and um, and sounds how it works? Yeah. Whatever. Whatever you'd like to uh, to to talk about where you went next within kind of your studies or 
I mean, I was I was flashing back a little bit towards kind of your early connection okay. to language. Sure. Um, well, um, I can just say that. Um, well, you know, to to sum it up, um, that uh, mm, it is really totally connected to our brain and uh, um, brain areas that uh, uh, that are used to uh, use when when we produce sounds and uh, language. Um, from what I can say, is um, a bit different from uh, other sounds that we um, produce, like meaningful sounds or um music um that we that we play um mm, or reproduce with our mouth um so we can um we can say uh, like right and uh, uh we can we can um say a word uh like to say and different brain areas would be um would be uh, mm, involved mm-hmm. um Mm, some of the uh, some of them overlap and some of them don't. So I find this fascinating how, how we how a brain uh, reflects and reacts on um, on uh, on the speech, like human speech language. Um, from uh, from the Indo-European, like Proto-Indo-European, and uh, all the stuff I'm dealing with. Um, I would say um, it's really it's really difficult to say what sounds sound they um, produced and uh, how it uh, how it was um, like centuries uh, and centuries ago. But um, mm, but we can we can speak about ideal uh, manifestations of sounds. Also, uh, I want to get into uh, growing up. What was the first language you learned, and how did and what languages did you learn? Like, what was the the language development you had as growing up? Like, you learned Korean first, and then did you learn at what age did you learn English? Oh yeah, <laughs> Ukrainian yeah. first, right? And then uh, um, part of my family uh, came from the dialect speaking area, so I went there uh, every summer, and uh, I didn't speak the dialect. Uh, at all, <laughs> I, I was so stubborn. <laughs> I used yeah. to speak standard Ukrainian to all my aunts and grannies, <laughs> and uh, um, only the, at, at the university I realized how much I love dialects, and I, I want to to go into into it um, deeper. But um, English, English. Um, in Ukrainian, usually uh, children learn English at the age of six. Um, now, earlier from the kindergarten, I learned it from the age of seven, mm. <laughs> and that's experience I had with my dad. He was <laughs> he has tortured me with the English. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. Mm. So you know, Ukrainian English, and you had some dialects of Slavic languages, right? You were saying some dialect, dialects. You're saying or some dialects, dialects, right? Or of, dialects, of, yeah. of Ukrainian, it's yeah, Western dialect. Ukrainian, South, yeah, Southwestern Ukrainian dialects. Um, Polish, there is Polish and Lithuanian as well. I picked them uh, much later, mm. and uh, there was Russian, but I, I never speak. Uh, um, I've never spoken Russian in my life. I just um, it, it, it sounded in the city, so I'm 
I could understand it. I could read it in Russian, but um, I didn't use it in, in, in my everyday uh, conversation because um, there was no need to. Mm. I realized I can I can use I can stick to Ukrainian um, since it's um, the official language of, of Ukraine and so on. Yeah, it's so interesting to think about like the infant and how they're so receptive to languages, and then over age. You know, we start to get more and more like set in the language, so it becomes difficult for many people to learn another language or learn um, different languages as they get older. Um, you know, and then it becomes more of a challenge. I mean, for me at least, learning other languages, even like in America, they teach you foreign languages at like middle school, and it's very difficult. I think even at that age to like really understand the language and, and the way it's taught is sometimes not so um, conducive to really picking up easily. And then now as an adult, it's almost impossible for me to, you know, it's so difficult for me to learn another language, you know, I have to translate a couple of times in my head to the languages I'm yeah, a little bit yeah. more familiar with. Yeah. I remember I could, you know, I was going to Hebrew school growing up and I could read the Hebrew growing up, uh, but the understanding was, was, was past me too. And I noticed kind of with some speakers, uh, of another language, they'll think in another language, but then uh, the words will come out either in English or some uh, mix of the two. Do, do you ever find that you will, is there any type of like, you know, how you have like a Spanglish, is there any type of kind of grouping of like a Ukrainian and English that comes together? Or do you see them as completely two, you know, separate ways of expression? Yeah, um, there is something um, called uh, um, code mixing. Um, when we, you know, when we don't really um, distinguish uh, two two codes, when we uh, mix them in uh, one word or like several words, we we mix phonetics, we mix syntax, we mix you know different uh, um, morphology and different language levels. Um, for me, it's um, probably a bit different because uh, I, I grew up in the um, bilingual um, community and uh, um, I learned how to separate two codes. Um, I, um, I just um, I had this vision that um, I need to keep Ukrainian uh, Ukrainian and uh, other languages other languages. Uh, so um, when I when I uh, speak Ukrainian, I don't really mix it even with English. Um, I try to translate uh, those words. Um, so um, lots of lots of people do that. Um, that um, they um, switch codes and they say you know they they include uh, an English word into the conversation, um, but. Um, um, I don't know. Um, this is for 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 the youth, for young people. It's cool. It's yeah. really it's slang, uh, and uh, and uh, and they did for fun. Um, I can't do it for. I don't know. I, I though I like it when other people do it. I'm not able to. What uh? What language do you dream in? Dreaming. When you're doing dreaming, when you have a dream, <laughs> do you do you hear a language or and what language is that? Right. Um, there were some. Uh, 
usually it's Ukrainian, but yeah. I also had dreams in English, German, <laughs> nice. and Lithuanian. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> So, so let's think also then about uh, then writing. Uh, when now you're starting to write poetry, are you uh, alternating between the two languages? Maybe what was some of the first um, kind of poetry that was coming out for you that was Ukrainian, and then some of the first poetry that that was English? And was there a crossover within writing as opposed to spoken speech ever? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. Um. Ukrainian, right? Ukrainian was the first, but um, it's so different when when you write in uh, other in the other language, like English. For me, um, I can express in English something that I can't can't in in my native language, um, and um, pro- well. Um, I would say I don't know why, but <laughs> I can guess. Um, that's literature. I used to um, I used to re- read in uh, those two languages. Um, it uh, of course it influences influences me on different levels. So um, if I want to if I want to speak on uh, some kind of painful topics, probably I will. Uh, switch to English as uh, um, I don't know I'm not used to do that in Ukrainian but I'm trying to do, do it backwards to, to um, or vice versa to uh, talk to talk in Ukrainian about um, about the painful Yeah, do you think that's uh, because of the you know the vulnerability allows you to kind of translate or tell us a little bit more about the the kind of translation or the the language is the, the translation in your mind allows a little distance from the the painful memory right or the painful aspects. It's like doing the translation or kind of doing those leaps linguistically. I think is what we understand allows you to kind of get create some distance. Would you say? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um. And another kind of identity I mm. used to uh, to speak in English. And uh, I can't do it because this identity is uh, um is distant from from the the Ukrainian uh, on like national issues, personal issues. Uh mm. so to say issues I experienced uh, as a Ukrainian speaker. Uh Mm, and um, yeah, it really helps me. Um, that person, that that <laughs> that writer, <laughs> doesn't really um, is an observer, so she doesn't really um, know uh, about this stuff. Well, at least that's my perception of it. Yeah, yeah. and also in, in our in previous you brought up some philosophers just to. Um, segue into some of the philosophers who you brought up. Um, like Derrida was someone who brought up a couple of quotes from. Uh, tell us a little bit about Derrida and how he was perhaps someone who you uh, were impacted by his philosophy and some of the quotes or if you want to review some of the ideas or some of the ideas or any other linguistic philosopher you want to key in on that kind of brought up some ideas for you or triggered some uh, thoughts in you, yeah. Yeah, um, 
Derrida, as as you as you know, he's Algerian-born French philosopher, and um, so he's best known for developing a form of semiotic analysis known as the construction. Um, so, and he, he he's developing it in the context of phenomenology. Um, the study of the structures of um, experiences and consciousness. And um, for me, he's, uh, he's really important he's, since he's um, a philosopher of a written culture instead of speaking culture, um, which is really popular right now. And now if while we are talking to each other here in the studio, um, we are... It's manifesting the speaking culture um, sign. Um, so um, for him, uh, the concept of um, repetition of uh, returning to um, to uh, well-known places and spaces was really important. Um, That's how writing works, right? We 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 write something then we can return to it we can edit it we can remove some things we can add some things um it's a safe space mm. so for me this safe space is um is crucial um, um i know that i can i i, I already uh, always have uh, a chance to change things uh, as soon as they are on on the paper on my computer, uh, as soon as they are not um, spoken, um, in in a way they are recorded, and um, you know, no one can, can can add or change anything there. Um, so um, he's important for me um, in this way, um, but um, um, he also speaks about the other. And um, above the subject on a scene uh, that keeps spinning uh, about a delayed existence. So um, actually, this is what we um, can think about um, talking about writing a delayed existence. We we, we just keep we keep spinning. Um, I really like his thought that the other shows up only when they vanish. Um, we write about our experiences um, in the way, um, you know, correctly, um, precisely, uh, only when they vanish, only when we feel some distance from them. Um, yeah, and then this this is really something that um, draws me in at, Mm. Yeah. So. Yeah, I, I've I've been fascinated by that thought too. That you know, when you're writing, uh, you know, it becomes a safe space. And I've often found that the writing of something will get me to a new realization of something, um, where the writing process of it becomes the healing process. Right. I, I agree. I've had many moments in life where, where yeah, you you need some distance in order to best articulate that thought uh, to then be read. Where where there's a bit of a um, pushback for me is, and you mentioned this a little bit down, is when then performing. Then if you are reading your words, 
should you be able to tap into that same emotion that you had while writing it or before writing it in order for the listener to take in the emotional experience of what they've heard? Or should you still maintain that detachment when you are reading the words mm. or performing them? Wow. Uh, right. Uh, performing, that's uh, a scary area for me. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, I try to avoid that. But uh, I really uh, I really love when uh, someone reads it, uh, like, um, like my poems or... Um, Well, yes, and uh, oh, it doesn't matter out loud or <laughs> just um, right. Right. Well, well, I yeah. guess what I'm asking is if if should somebody can somebody have an emotional experience listening to you read if you are yourself reading it without having that emotional experience? Um, like, are the words enough to take them through that emotional experience, or should they be invited in with performance flourishes or the, the listeners seeing, oh, this is affecting them in real time emotionally on how they are delivering mm. uh, the passage. Yeah, right. Um, could be. Um, I mean, uh, for me, a poem is very open space. Yeah. And it, it can do almost whatever you want to do with it. You can perform it and you'll never know what the other person and listener will uh, discover for, for, for themselves. So you, you just uh, open the door and you invite. And uh, then and, and you, if you want to, to, to walk them through, you may perform that. But still, that's just another door. Yeah. And, and yeah, and I, I really like love synthesis of uh, of uh, you know, of poetry readings and music playings and uh, some some other uh, other kinds of uh, performance. Mm. Yeah, I'm also also about creating space and um, opening up space. You know, that's that's something a concept of creating space is something that is very subtle in the sense that it creates a safe space or it creates openness. So in that regard, um, thinking about watershed moments in your own process and how, what were some moments in childhood? I think we, we, we talked a little bit about this beforehand, but um, some watershed moments in your own process, which you kind of became that um, you were able to give space to something. And, and you talked a little bit about your mother, your relationship with your mother. And if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Yeah, um, when, um, well, actually, I was six or seven. Um, my childhood experience, um, um, I always asked my mom, uh, actually, um, I asked my mom, but, um, at the same time, I always asked myself if my mom was happy being a stay at home mom, caring for, for three children, cooking, buying things, delaying her scientific careers. Uh, Uh, she was supposed to be a um, candidate of sciences uh, in uh, literature, literature. And, um, mm, well, I must say in a few years, she completed and defended her dissertation in literature. Um, I guess it was nine or ten. But uh, she never said she regretted that. 
experience experience of uh, um, of the stay at home mom. Um, yet I seen her sad and tired. Used to think I was the reason for that, and uh, it took me actually years to realize um, I was not. And um, I must say, rational thinking uh, would not be very helpful or convincing for me. Um, I had to experience things. Um, I had to realize that, um, mm, you know, you know, to talk to um, myself as, um, as as a small child and to, to convince her, you're not, uh, you're not guilty. Uh, um, mm. Yeah, and um, I guess this is also a matter of uh, self-esteem um, when we uh, when we grow up and uh, when our self-esteem grows up, um, we learn uh, to to appreciate the choices we we make and uh, the choices other people make, mm. and we we uh, learn to love them and uh, accept them. I guess that's what happened. Um, What you just shared about your mother really touched my heart because I'm a mother to a four-year-old. So you have such a sensitivity to your mother's feelings at such a young age. I know for me, when I contemplate motherhood, I feel love. And my definition of love from a creativity perspective is being a creation, what it needs, not what I think it needs. So a good example of this is when a child is in a mother's womb and the child takes from the mother what it needs. And I, I feel that um, most people feel that motherhood is one of the most important roles. At the same time, I understand not everyone's life path is to have a physical child of their own. Instead, they may play the nurturing role of a teacher to their students. And a nurturing role would be described as that feminine nurturing energy which would be described as coming from the heart. And the masculine thrusting energy would be described as the mind. So when you teach, um, can you share how you create the safe space, that nurturing energy, um, that nurturing space for your students? Thank you, Lee. Um, well, um, that's what you said is, is so important for me. Um, Actually, I may add, add um, about um, about the language, like linguistics, uh, linguistic aspect uh, of this. Um, when when a child is in mother's womb, the it, it uh, uh, she or he um, already um, distinguished their the mother's language, uh, at least voice, and they can distinguish it from from other voices. So. They, they know how to do it um and uh for me it's it, when i learned that it, it i found it fascinating how our brain works um at that at that early age um about my experience well i try to uh to to create a safe space for my students as you said um accepting them uh trying to Teach them that there's no fault at all. So language is uh, is, as I think, um, is a very vulnerable space. And uh, mm, mm, when we, especially when we um, 
are talking about foreign language and uh, foreign language learning. Um, so I try to, um, you know, to show, not to say. Sometimes I say, but uh, to show uh, that um, there's no such thing as a fault that you or mistake. Um, whatever you say is good, and uh, you just practice and practice if you want. Actually, you don't need to. There's no pressure. Um, and uh, usually my students uh, try to um, try to do that, to practice, and they really want to. They uh, have this desire and passion for learning and uh, um, exploring new areas. And they know they will never be punished in a way um, of a bad word or a bad uh, um, glance uh, that, you know, teachers, usually teachers, they, they react and they show they don't, they don't like this or that. Um, I try to uh, treat them as babies <laughs> and babies never, ever um, make mistakes. They, when they learn how to uh, walk and they fell down and they then then what they just we, we try to help them to stand up and uh, to keep walking and they they will do falling down many times but uh, uh, they will never realize they did um, anything wrong and their parents they 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 just enjoy the process they walk with them through that yeah no i love what you're saying they're creating kind of that judgment free space uh with you know an unconditional love for for your students and and i i find you know that baby metaphor uh is beautiful uh but it will become a little bit more difficult when let's say students are teens or or, or middle school age when of course you have that that self-consciousness that creeps in. And I, I tend to think of a blank page as both a safe space, but also a dangerous place. Uh, oftentimes, I know students, they don't know how to start, or they don't know what to start. So I'm wondering for you, uh, on the flip side of complete openness, uh, do you personally ever experiment with uh, forms, poetic forms, or, or some structure with, uh, with which allows that open creativity? Or do you prefer not to really work in a space where there are like a poetic form, for instance. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, poetic forms. Um, I try, um, I had different experiences. I, so when I was a teenager, I, I tried to um, rhyme. Since uh, Ukrainian literature it uses rhymes, and uh, and this is the poetic form that uh, um, that is, you know, it was popular at the time. Uh, but um, I I found out that I'm not able to do that. Um, actually, it puts some uh, it puts some uh, you know boundaries and. Uh, um, I feel uncomfortable with that, so I uh, um, I shifted to um, free verse and uh, 
and for me in poetry it's it's really important to leave free spaces and uh, that the coons you can or loops you can um, flip in you can jump in yeah well this also kind of brings up in me is my understanding my rudimentary understanding of Wittgensteinian uh, Wittgenstein Luden Wittgenstein um, he talked about language games he talked about how like within certain contexts you know we're playing like right now we're playing the game of you know uh, a podcast or a live talk show and we're, we're talking I, if this were a normal conversation, they'd be like different rhythms and different, um, you know, if we were not being recorded, it would be different rhythms and different games we'd be playing. Now we're playing the, the co-host and co-host and, and guest and all these kinds of things, ways in which we structure our language and the ways in which we play games and language and how we articulate ourselves or how we present ourselves in these formal constructs is also it kind of makes me think about that a little bit about that, reflect on the process we're doing right now and how, um, even you know, calling in and and being in studio together, all these different aspects, and and you can see my hand gestures, whereas the people calling in cannot, and how that all informs our language, how it informs our our processing of an event. You, know, you talked a little bit of event and and versus, um, you know, I think in Derrida he talks a little bit of event as well. So if you can comment a little bit about that, about like what's your understanding of like how you know the brain kind of obviously we're not thinking so much about how we construct language. Um, when we're speaking, but the context is what informs, I think, the the ways in which we construct our language and reflecting a little bit on on context. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> this um, I just while you were uh, saying that, I got some reference to Chomsky. Um, yeah. you know, but code switching. Um, there was um, a period of time he didn't believe in code switching he, he used to say well um there's one code and uh you do the same as i do but uh well you use the same tools but uh you do different a different thing um but then um when uh he was asked asked how is it really the same thing to switch between uh, two languages and switch between two styles? He said, well, they are different. There, there, there are some differences. They are very different. And this <laughs> very <laughs> creates quality. <laughs> so, yes, there is. Um, usually uh, linguists uh, say that uh, for mo- monolinguals, um, you would uh, you would switch between um, codes styles, but for bilinguals, for uh, you use languages, switching between languages within one conversation. And uh, what we are doing right now um, is it's really a game, um, code switching game. I would say <laughs> a, a little maze. Um, we are trying to to we are approaching. Um, in terms of Derrida and his events, uh, understanding of an event and sign, um, he said that um, a sign uh, couldn't be couldn't be a re- mm. so, so so he used to say about the presence and um, the um, and how we repeat. Um, um, the, the presence of the uh, the present is derived from repetition, 
and not and not the reverse. Um, so, um, further, I was I was puzzled by that quote. How do you interpret that? One more. Um, the presence of the present is derived mm-hmm. from repetition and not the reverse. Mm. So familiarity, would you say? Like you, as you become familiar with the object right. by, through repetition, um, you know, we, come, we become more acquainted with it mentally, right? Would right. Yeah. yeah. Through repetition, yeah. Right. Which, which I would think, you know, with that, we can fall kind of though into sometimes an autopilot of agreement or practicing social conventions rather than being hearing, uh, like agreeing with something uh, just because you've heard it before rather than kind of a more nuanced approach to it. I'm like, I just wonder where active listening versus passive listening, where you hear something and like, you know, you're, you're talking to me now and if you articulate thought and and I, and I'm not quite grasping it, but some people might not, uh, say, uh, could you re-explain that to me? Or could you, could you try that again? Social conventions might cause them just to be polite and not even say that that idea did not land for me or I, I didn't quite grasp it. Um, could you try it in another way or something like that? Mm. Um, yeah. Interesting. Interesting yeah. thought. I was just having. Yeah. Familiarity with our understanding comes from not just, um, Reacquainting with the same language, but also reapproaching the idea in a different way. I think that that's my understanding is reapproaching yeah, in a different yeah. way, so that then we're not just repeating, but we're also kind of refamiliarizing it with the idea, but the idea behind the the language, and not kind of falling into a rut of like, um, you know, this is the way I interpret it, and staying with that, but rather staying present in the moment as it re re um re- is reintroduced. Gotcha. Oh, so so by repetition, we're not meaning using the same words with which to articulate the thought, just kind of the same ideas being repeated over yeah. multiple ways. Am I okay? Yeah, Am I right. Uh, to to the, to this point, I might I just another quotation from Derrida. Uh, he said, "A sign is never an event. If by event we mean an irreplaceable and irreversible empirical uh, empirical particular, right?" Yeah. So, mm, yeah, that's what we are actually um, saying about repetition. Right, right. Yeah. circling around that. Oh, nice. Um, does uh, does Oksana, do, do you have something that you could maybe read of, of your own writing that you care to share that uh, either in Ukrainian or, or, or in English um, that that the, the listeners could, could hear today? Yeah, well, um, I actually or do. Perhaps even reading it in both, if you feel comfortable. Right. That would be a nice contrast of how we're perceiving the information, you know, as we're listening to you and going into our creative imagination. Um, right. Um, if you excuse me, I'll, I'll yeah, just take we'll, several seconds to, to find it. Um, yeah, she's looking up on her phone, so we'll take a moment just to talk a little bit about Yeah, so we'll talk, um, I know... Oksana, has, and the translation as well is a big issue that we discussed in um, on the show, the subtleties of translation. In a previous episode, we had another Ukrainian poet talking about translation, so we'll, talk, we'll revisit that as she pulls up the um, document. We'll revisit translation and, and how the sounding of words um, 
sometimes can be the sound can convey a meaning as well as the understanding that we might have as English speakers of the, of the Ukrainian, you know, it conveys a certain meaning from that. So you have a moment just to pull it up. Okay. Yeah. I like the siren in the background. Yeah. Spoke about sound. Yeah. All these different, yeah, all these different aspects of the environment as well in the context of the language games we play in these environments. Yeah. Yeah. All right, cool. Wow, All right. Yeah. Siren. I wonder if the siren sounds different in any other country, though. I think it does. <laughs> I remember the ambulance uh, is a little bit different. Like, it's a different beat for the sound. <laughs> All right. So, Oksana's ready, I think, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. Right. Yeah. Okay. Great. There we go. Um, you don't recognize her. Oh, well, um, this is a trans. This poem was translated by Olena Jennings yeah. from Ukrainian. Um, you don't recognize her. She opens petals cut from apples and things. What a nice show on my mother's shoulders. Colorful like the yellow and red skins of various apples. She holds on to the hope that the seeds of grass that she Plants yearly will grow. The taste of the pears will cease to be bitter. She enthusiastically stokes the fire on the white rock of the round-eyed lake. Afterwards, she eats, drinks, writes, paints, and knows only that she descends from a woman and that the dearest woman in her life descends from another woman and so on from a woman, a woman, a woman, from her mother to a grand, grand, grand. When you recognize her on some winding streets in the city and rejoice, it is the mother of God. Please, don't tell her this. She doesn't know it yet. Beautiful, beautiful. And you, uh, do you have the Ukrainian as well, or can you read it in Ukrainian as well, or...? Oh, that'd be nice to hear yeah, both. Sure. <laughs> yeah, it'd be nice to hear both. Yeah, just to, just as we were saying about the linguistical resonance of languages. If I mean, some of our listeners might know Ukrainian, but you know, yeah. some, I assume some of our listeners don't. So, but either way, it'll be nice to hear both versions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, and <laughs> I'd ask for another second. <laughs> Those, um, any, re- any reflections on from our? Uh, on the poem? Yeah, I mean, I was just wondering if she could, uh, yeah, translate on the fly as, as read it, read it, look at it in English and recite it in <laughs> Oh, wow. Okay, I can do that. Yeah, I guess. All right, cool. Okay. It'd be interesting to think uh, of those terms, yeah. Uh, it will take more, more time. I just, um, just lost my file. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I really love the the motherhood and lineage of mothers aspect of that poem. Uh, how like the lineage of uh, of women is sometimes neglected in our society. We think about you know lineage as being like a line of men rather than a line of women. So it's very nice to to hear that 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 image. 
Okay. Um, right. Yeah. So. Ай, кога? Ти не впізнаєш її. Um, вона відкриває пелюстки, um, обрізані з я... вирізані з яблук, і думає, яка гарна хустина на плечах моєї мами, кольорова, як жовті і, і червоні яблуневі плоди. Вона, тримає, вона, м- вона вірить, що насіння трави, яке вона садить щороку, виросте, і від груш гниличок більше не терпнутиме. Вона щоразу розпалює багаття на білому камені окатого озера. Зрештою, вона їсть, п'є, пише, малює і знає лише, що походить від жінки. А найдорожча жінка в її житті від іншої жінки. І так від жінки до жінки до жінки, від її мами до пра-пра-пра. Коли ти впізнаєш її на одній зі звивистих вуличок міста, ось Богородиця, будь ласка, не кажи їй про це, вона ще не знає. Thank you. Yes, thank you for that. Uh, so, Thank you. Um, I'm really curious about your reflections. <laughs> yeah. Was it very different? Um, what is, um, you know, uh, like listening to the original and the translation? Um, what do you feel? Right. Just totally, with, without knowing uh, Ukrainian myself, just, you know, yeah, there, obviously there's a little uh, more definitiveness and, and confidence in reading the second Uh, version, even though you're tra- you're doing two language mechanisms at once, where you're reading something in English and, and your mind is doing kind of two thought processes. Um, and yeah, just you're speaking kind of generations. I, I, I'm torn. I'm, I'm geared now toward kind of a talk on spirituality and like if God speaks to us or somebody that has passed on speaks to us, what language do they speak to us in? Is it the language with which they spoke? Is it a non-spoken language? Uh, how, how do they communicate with us? Um, whether it's, you know, if we, if we think of a God, whether or not you believe in it, are they, are they speaking in the language that you know or just a universal language that speaks to all people? Yeah, that's a very interesting question, yeah. Mm. When you pray, do you pray in language? No. No, yeah. No, I... I, I I, yeah. I pray in no language. Uh, I just, uh, I see images mm. without any words. Yeah, yeah. Feelings, feelings and understandings come to you. And feelings. Yeah, feelings yeah. and understandings. Like that, you just understand mm-hmm. things from feelings or impulses or base emotional resonances. You understand, you come down. And then I think we generally tend to translate those when we're reflecting. I don't know, at least in my experience, we try to translate those into language in some level, um, in order for the mind to understand and grasp and follow suit. But the heart has to really resonate with that language of the divine, I think, that, that uh, non-language of the divine, or that, that kind of imagistic or feeling language of the divine. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's beautiful, DJ. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you I'm did. just going along with 
Oh, sorry. <laughs> so, so sorry. No, no. Go ahead. I'm just going along with Deidre about, you know, the feeling when I was listening to your voice, Oksana, I was just reminded of someone that you sounded like. So I was just like going into my memories and just and contemplating what you were saying, but also just really feeling the tone of voice. And I was just sensing this, this you know, this nurturing energy coming from you. So that for me, I was, those were the things that were coming to mind as I was listening to you. Thank you, Lee. It's, it's thank very you. sweet. Um, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, this kind of language games is that, the, you know, I think that there's such a, you know, uh, interesting factor of like getting into like the, that's why so many people find the language of love, you know, the language of beyond language, you know, between two people, once people, somebody's telling me an experience they had where they were speaking one language and the other person speaking another language and they're somehow communicating between each other. I mean, there were similar enough languages where that each person was able to understand the other, you know, but they weren't speaking their, their original language. You know, one was speaking, I think, um, Spanish and one was speaking Portuguese, so, but they were able to have a communion through that. And many people write about their relationships where the, the two people are speaking different languages and they're able to communicate. So it's very interesting how we have, we have a natural capacity for language, but also going beyond language and how we can go beyond language and what ways can we go beyond linguistical or understandings and the sounds and, the, and, and then one, how one can lead to the other, one can connect with the other. Yeah. Um, Wanda Phipps has uh, um, has a poem called "Disorientation." Yeah. Right? It's about language and uh, exploring um, gray areas of language. Mm. Like, you know, nice, nice. Areas we we, we it, it, I have when I read it. Um, this line, I always get the impression um, I'm thinking about our brain. And the gray and white substances of, of, of the brain, um, those gray areas is just something in between. But it, in terms in terms of this, but um, yeah, they can be yellow, they yeah. can be white, <laughs> <laughs> they can be of any other color. Yeah. Is there? Uh what would be attuned to like a double meaning in Ukrainian uh, if we're talking about just yes, language games or, or a double entendre? Does that does that exist? in I mean, take I guess gray. You know, you have gray uh, as a name, Jennifer Gray, picture of Dorian Gray, or you have gray, uh, gray's anatomy or, or gray color. Is there is there kind of a, an equivalent within the Ukrainian in poetry, like a double meaning? Hmm. Something mm-hmm. meaning two things uh, almost at once. Yeah, like punning type deal. Yeah, I would say so. Um, gray in Ukrainian um, would be siri. So there's uh, when you say siri, or um, but you you would want to say sira in a with another ending um talking about female because uh zone in ukrainian is female and there's sira zona gray zone um and uh if you use this so um, for, for ukrainian uh endings matter and um you will get associations uh different connections double meanings um 
um, depending on uh, on the ending as well. Like mm. Female, uh, like um, like you know, masculine and feminine, um, yeah. or neuter, and <laughs> all these matters. There's a great uh, Calvin Hobbes uh, cartoon where Calvin's saying. I need to know the gender of my nouns, or I need to gender these <laughs> objects. I'm being cheated out of my education because English denies us the idea of the genderification of of uh, right. of certain uh, words. You know, like, there's so much more subtlety to. Um, but now, you know, now we have the whole, you know, movement towards non-binary and and also disrupting of the binary. But you know, it's interesting thing about how um, how that's going to affect language moving forward. You know, how we have the disruption of the male female and how, um, you know, people want to express their gender in, in ways that are more fluid. In which case that might, that might, you know, hundred years from now, we'd have more of a disruption of, you know, in lang, in the actual way in which we express language, uh, there might be more of a, uh, ambiguity, more of a movement towards, uh, neutral gendered words. I don't know. That's my postulation. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. I agree. Yeah. 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 So just remind listeners, this is the Truth to Power show. We're here with Oksana uh, Lebedivna and uh, Scott Raven and in conversation with Lee Kang. Um, so yeah, yeah, so we're just about to close out. So um, I just want to remind listeners that Radio for Brooklyn is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. We're here to provide a freely open platform to our community and provide media literacy, promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. You know, we did the... Um, we did a bunch of public art exhibits in Brooklyn, and we hope to continue. So we rely primarily on donations of listeners like you. Uh, please consider donating. Uh, every dollar helps us to continue to stay on air. Let's continue our work in the community. Um, go to radioforbrooklyn.org slash donate. If you're an Amazon shopper and would like to donate in a way that costs you nothing, go to radioforbrooklyn.org slash Amazon or .com slash Amazon and register Radio for Brooklyn as your Amazon Smile Charity. Every time you shop, a portion of your purchase benefits Radio for Brooklyn. If you're listening in front of your computer, free yourself up by downloading our mobile apps for iPhone or Android. Bell on the App Store for iPhone or Google Play Store for Android. And be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter for latest news about new program and upcoming RFB events at radioforbrooklyn.org slash newsletter. Thank you. All right. So any last thoughts from anyone? Any last shots? And we got to go. Last shots, you think? Yeah. This was a great conversation and, and uh, for fielding some of these questions and sharing your story and your poem. Uh, thank I you. Enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, Oksana. Yes, thank you, Oksana, and thank you, Vijay and Scott, for a beautiful orchestration. And I guess my closing message is follow your heart. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm very thankful. Thank you, Lee, Scott, and Vijay, for having me here today. I really enjoyed that. Thanks so much, guys.